The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. Whatever. I'm telling you now so you don't wonder later. Have I ever lied to you? No. And I'm not going to start now. So why bring it up? On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Stuart Ross, the president of El Tigre Silver Corp. Stu, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Always nice to be here. Now, we haven't talked in uh, quite some time, a couple of months. There's been some new developments down there at the El Tigre project near Hermosillo. That's correct, Ellis. We've completed our 2013 drill program, drilled 4,862 meters. The uh, assays are coming in on a weekly basis. We have... I believe at this stage 11 holes out of 38 that have not been reported. The 11 holes will be reported over the next two weeks. Progress is being made as well with the data from the drill holes on our 43101 update. So you've done a bunch of work outside of the tailings, which, by the way, the tailings are what you're going to use to go into production hopefully next year. And you've got a lot of property, 431 square kilometers, as I recall. How much of that will you be drilling in the near future? Of the 431 square kilometers, we have an area of 1.5 kilometers of strike length, which is what we've been focusing on. The 1.5 kilometers is the actual workings from the old mine, 35 years of production. There's another three-plus kilometers of vein system to the north of it that's been explored but not mined. So we have a total of about 5.3 kilometers of strike length. 31 square kilometers, Ellis is 15 kilometers by 25 kilometers in area, so we're not using a lot of it at this stage. You're just staying within basically what was the previous mine. You're going in more depth than they could decades ago with the technology that was available at the time. That's correct. We are, in fact, drilling in an area where the previous mine was. We focused in the last year on the southern 1.2 kilometers of that area, and we have drilled, as I said, our last program just finished here in 2013 for just short of 5,000 meters. That will give us no more than 50-meter spacings over the 1.2 kilometers. That allows us to build a block model and produce a resource in our 43101 that's being revised. 
Now, that revised 43-101 is going to include the tailings, are they not? Yes, we have, in fact, determined that we will also include the tailings. We'll produce a different report for the tailings. The tailings will, in fact, be a reserve with a pre-feasibility being done. At this stage in the game, we are, in fact, doing the work necessary to produce that report. The work has not been completed, so we don't currently have a pre-feasibility, but it will be something that we're working towards in the revised 43-101. And you expect that, as I recall, to be completed more or less around the end of June? That's correct. We've been having weekly conference calls with the engineering firm that's producing the block model for us, and we're still on target. Timeline is still the same the end of June of this year. Now, we're speaking to you in Vancouver right now. You're in Vancouver and I'm in Los Angeles. But by the time this airs, you'll be back in Mexico. You spend quite a bit of time there. Why is that? It's necessary to, to be in Mexico because that's where the project is. The work that goes on here in Vancouver is administrative in nature and it's uh, investor relations in nature. I don't need to be here for that. And I would rather be in Mexico because there's a lot more going on there. We have a camp with, as you and I both know, some great food. <laughs> so I like going back for that. But there's lots of work to be done back there as well, both in the office in Hermosillo and at the camp at El Tigre. That's funny. I've lived in the southwestern U.S. for well over 35 years now, and some of the best Mexican food that I've ever had is at the El Tigre camp. I mean, how many mining companies can say that? It is amazing. I love it. That's one of the reasons I like to go back, but I'm being facetious. The real reason is, is because that's where the work's being done, so that's where I need to be. Well, your background is basically in finance, and you're a numbers guy. You're not an engineer by trade, but I've got to tell you, out of many of the, the companies that I've become familiar with, it, it's hard to find the president of the company or the chairman on site as much as you've been. Well, I, I appreciate the comment. I, I still think that's where the work is. That's If that's where the work is, that's where I have to be. Now, talk about some of the grades you've been recovering over the last few months. I understand the feasibility study is not complete yet. You don't have your final numbers ready yet for the 43-101 report, but let's talk about some of those grades. We released on April the 3rd a news release that said we had 75 meters of 2.26 grams of gold. That equated to 24.8 grams of silver and 1.76 grams of gold. That's not a very high grade, but it's 72 meters of it, which is what we're looking for. We're looking for a bulk target in the Gold Hill area. Along with that, we have in that same news release, we reported whole uh, 51 as an example with just short of a kilo of silver and 11 grams of gold over a, a shorter interval. So what we have in this area is very high-grade veins that we're drilling are unmined veins so that when we do drill them, the core comes out with the clean vein material and we get those kinds of grades. We have, in fact, in the later news release that we did, there's grades that are the same kind of equivalents. We have 26 meters of 1.78, 85 meters of almost a gram of gold, 54 meters of almost a gram. So, again, the lower grade, stronger intersections. And along with that, we had hole 71, which had just short of two kilos of silver on a uh, almost a half a meter, 0.3 meters. Again, not a very big intercept, but huge grades. I see here on one particular intercept that you didn't mention, but I will, 571 grams per ton of silver and 11.87 grams per ton of gold. That's very significant. Granted, it's 2.15 meters, but if you found something like that, who knows what else might be under, under there. That's what we're finding. We're finding that, again, this area we're drilling, it has a halo around the vein system. The halo is, is providing us with grades that are mineable grades, decent mineable grades, 
one to two grams of gold per ton. But what's not in that, in each of those intercepts, is the high-grade vein system that still exists, where we're getting upwards of anywhere from a half a meter to a meter and a half of half a kilo to two kilos of silver per ton. I mean, those are enormous grades. That is enormous. Now, how deep do you have to go before you hit a motherlode vein? The vein system runs from surface dips for 450 meters from the old mine system and the mine records we have. We don't go any deeper than 220 meters. 700 feet equivalent, if you like, is where we're looking for the ore body. We're looking for it in that area so that we can, in fact, open pit when the time comes for us to mine it. If we go below 700 feet, below 225 meters, an open pit becomes problematic, so we don't drill below that. That's not to say that the vein doesn't go below that, because the vein through the old mine records shows 450 meters, 1,500 feet of dip. That's for another time down the road. You plan on this being an open pitable project for the foreseeable future, and you intend on using funds from the tailings which you expect to go into production in the near future, like we discussed, to fund the uh, larger El Tigre project down the road, correct? That's correct. We're hoping and expecting that the results that we get from the tailings, from producing the tailings, will give us the uh, resources we need to continue the project both from a drill perspective and also an expansion perspective. All right, I'm going to ask you a question right now, Stu. What are you particularly excited about right now? What haven't we said? I think we've said it all. We've got 5.3 kilometers of strike length. We're drilling 1.2 of it. We'll have a resource by the end of June, and the resource will be based on 1.2 kilometers out of 5.3. What we've seen in the drill results that we're getting today is that we have a halo around the vein system that will give us mineable grades, and we'll have a vein system, albeit short intercepts, but the vein system with very high grade that will add to the value of that ground. Well stated. I need to ask you this question, though, Stu. Many people are saying, in fact, I'll go ahead and say it, it is a tough market right now. Is there any concern at all in your mind with regard to the stock market, the metals market, the price of silver, and what you're doing in El Tigre? I'd be silly if I said it wouldn't concern me. The market has been difficult at best. Raising funds has been difficult. We have a very strong following of shareholders in Alberta. We have raised all the money we've raised, basically, from... 2011 onwards has been with those private investors. They're still very much behind the project. So from that perspective, I'm encouraged that we would be able to continue to fund it going forward. We have the funds for the rest of this year. We've paid for our drill program already. We're good to go with that. What we need is funding for the tailings. We're working diligently on getting that put together and hope to do so in the near future. Stu, it's always a pleasure to speak with you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm more than welcome. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our next conversation in the very near future after you get back from Mexico again. I've been speaking with Stuart Ross, the president and CEO of El Tigre Silver Corp. El Tigre trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Their website is eltigresilvercorp.com. Find their logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and listen to this segment again on the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety, downloadable on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Find out a bunch more things to find out about at that guy's website, ellismartinreport.com. 
I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome to the program. Well, it's good to be on with you. Give us a little background, if you would, on PGMs. Well, the platinum group metal complex, which is the most significant two metals, are platinum and palladium. They're one of the smaller precious metal segments after gold and silver. The market that's about one-tenth the size in terms of production of the gold market. It's an interesting market in that it's got the combination of precious metals, store of value type valuation that you'd use towards gold, but a strong industrial component. The biggest use today for platinum and palladium go into catalytic converters for gasoline and, and diesel engines. And that's been the really significant growth component to demand for these two metals, which pretty much has been uninterrupted growth year on year since about probably 1980 for the two metals. And what's interesting about platinum and palladium as well is that their production is very concentrated in high political risk jurisdictions. About 90% of production comes out of southern Africa and Russia. And your listeners may be aware that there's been a lot of challenges uh, recently for the mining companies, particularly for platinum, in South Africa, which produces about 75% of the world's platinum today, with labor problems, problems getting enough energy, and operating costs that are uh, basically higher than the current price of the metals. Aren't these countries like South Africa and Zimbabwe cutting their own throats, more or less? when they do things like nationalize the mines or make it difficult to get in there when you have a jurisdiction like Canada and the Yukon that doesn't have any of these political risks? Well, there's no question it's not helping their industry. The challenge is that those countries are going through significant social and political turmoil right now, and they're trying to settle on their way that they're going to legislate mining and and the way labor and and industry is going to you know, operate together. In those countries, there's been a significant move towards nationalization or partial nationalization requiring the mining companies to vest ownership in the project to other you know, groups or to the government. And that makes it really difficult for these companies to justify reinvesting new capital and, and, and keeping the mines you know, up to date. And one of the issues that you've got, you know, like the gold mining industry, is these mines, particularly in South Africa, are very old very deep, very narrow seams. You know, most of these zones that they're mining in South Africa, they're mining at depths of, you know, thousands of feet deep in the earth where it's quite hot temperatures, and these zones might be anywhere from 3 to 10 feet in width. So they're very narrow, very difficult conditions, and almost all done by hand. And it just makes it a very difficult situation to try to even shift over to a more mechanical, modern mining configuration. So they're not cheap to operate. 
Perhaps that's another reason why the big major Anglo-American shut down their operations in South Africa. Are they looking at the Canadian Yukon? Do you expect anything to go on in the future with perhaps your company and a major like Anglo-American? There's a real scarcity, in part just because of the geology. There are not very many places in the world outside of Southern Africa and Russia that host large deposits. Stillwater mining here in the United States, in Wyoming and Montana, they're one of the biggest North American producers. And then the Sudbury Mining District up in Canada is the second largest producing region out of those mines. There's a few other companies, but it's a really small space compared to, say, the gold space where you have hundreds and hundreds of development stage gold assets that are being looked at and developed or mined you know, around the world. There are a few promising regions such as the Yukon. You know, Our particular project up there is something at 7 million ounces of platinum and palladium. It's world class in terms of its scale. In fact, it's in the top three of projects outside of Southern Africa for development stage. So it's really a project that companies are starting to take note of, and I think we're going to see more interest in projects that are located in lower political risk areas in the platinum palladium space. Now it's open pitable and easier to access as opposed to the mines you just discussed in Southern Africa. Does that mean that the cost structure is going to be significantly less? And I understand you brought on John Sagman as COO, who has a great deal of experience streamlining production costs. Yeah, this project is fairly unique in the platinum space. As I said, most of the active platinum mines today are deep, underground, narrow seams that they're basically mining. They, sometimes they refer to them as reefs. And these things are mostly hand mining situations. The project that we're looking at in the Yukon for Prophecy Platinum is one in which we're looking, it looks more similar to a modern, large-scale open-pit gold mine. The mineralization for the, the platinum and palladium, nickel and copper, all occur together. And these occur as wide, wide widths, up to 1,500 feet in thickness. They start right at surface and are associated with uh, what we call ultramafic rocks, which is a geologic term for high iron-bearing rocks that come from deep in the earth. And these come right to surface at this area and would allow us to have very modern, large-scale equipment that would make our unit cost to mine an ounce of platinum or a ton of ore very low by comparison to techniques that are requiring a lot of handwork. One of the things I like about platinum and palladium as an investor and one that follows this sector is that these two metals should not be related to gold and do not always follow gold. Platinum and palladium as of late have been trading at a premium to gold. Gold being much more speculative and less of an industrial metal, more popular in the markets when economic news is troubling. Whereas PGMs tend to fare better when industrial production picks up or we get hints that the economies of the world are improving. Furthermore, no matter what else is going on in the world economically, the production and sale of automobiles in China continues to rise as that country swiftly catches up with the rest of us, becoming a first world power. These new automobiles will continue to use catalytic converters for quite some time, Greg. Yeah, in general, in the developing world, and you know, we're hearing this BRIC, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, those developing countries in particular are seeing tremendous growth in their automobile industry. And particularly, you know, we hear the headlines all the time about the pollution in, in places like China. They're going to be required to adopt more North American, European-type standards for catalytic converters to reduce the automobile component of their pollution. You're seeing not only increased number of cars that are coming into those markets, but the requirement to have catalytic converters that contain more of the platinum palladium metal, which act as catalysts to remove those pollutants, is going to be critical. And so that combination of 
the fastest growing part of the world in terms of automobile purchases with the need for more metal in their catalytic converters is going to be a really strong component for growth for platinum and palladium. Now, I know there are strong signs that the automobile industry is gaining steam right here in Southern California. As new and used car sales are picking up, you're not necessarily relying on the North American market for your offtake, are you? Well, I think most analysts are projecting eventually we're going to see a turnaround in the U.S. market that way. A lot of people are saying it's been several years since we've seen a really robust automobile sector in terms of growth. But, you know, I think most of the growth in demand that's being projected for platinum and palladium is coming out of the developing world and backed up with continued consumption of new automobiles in North America and Europe. Europe's also been quite weak, the automobile sector. It's been one of its weakest periods. So I think the opportunity probably to see growth as that economy turns around in the next couple of years will only add to these current estimates of, of growth of demand. Speaking of analysts, GMP Securities issued a buy recommendation a couple of weeks ago for a $2 share price for Prophecy Platinum. Let's talk about that. GMP is a mid-sized investment banking group out of Canada. They are considered one of the top groups for following the mining sector. They probably are one of the most on top of the, the platinum palladium industry. Before initiating their research report on Prophecy Platinum, they put out an industry sector review in which they were very bullish, in part because of the demand growth that we've been talking about for automobiles and other industrial uses for platinum and palladium. But really, on top of that, it's the fact that we've been seeing falling production of these metals, you know, not just this year, but really the production of platinum and palladium peaked in 2005, 2006. So though it's been in the headlines lately, GMP pointed out in their report, this is a trend that's been in, in motion for six plus years, and that anytime you get a sector that's got growing demand, where you're increasing consumption year on year, and falling production is a great recipe for increased metal prices. And, of course, increased metal prices will generally reflect in a multiple, oftentimes, in the equities that are mining or exploring and developing for those prices. So they're very bullish on the platinum-palladium sector. They point out that there are very few growth opportunities, new development stage projects that are outside of southern Africa to even invest in. So, yeah, they were quite excited to, to work with us in terms of looking at taking our particular investment story out to investors. And you've been doing a great job of branding with regard to Prophecy Platinum. Well, I think we've got pretty good awareness. This company is relatively new, so this is an opportunity that's, that's pretty early days in terms of overall investor awareness, but I think we've done a good job of starting to get the name out. There just aren't that many companies that are working in platinum and palladium. The new management team, which came in in November, including myself, John Sagman, our chief operating officer, and, and Jeffrey Mason, our chief financial officer, we've been working, particularly over the last several months, on, on doing the technical work really diving in, understanding the geologic model, understanding the next steps in engineering and the opportunities. So we've just started to get out to meet with investors in the last month or so, starting to introduce this to large institutional investors, the guys that buy millions of shares. And we're getting a good response from them in terms of interest, particularly with the news headlines that we're seeing out of South Africa and other places, which suggests a real problem in terms of finding new sources of supply. Well, you have a high-profile CEO. That would be you. How did you get from gold to silver to platinum and palladium, Greg? Give us a little background on this transition. Uh, well, yeah, I guess it's been 
an interesting uh, career. I started out my career with Placer Dome, who became Barrick Gold, the world's largest gold mining company, and had a great opportunity to be able to work on projects throughout the world during my tenure with them. Then in 1998, along with two other geologists, started Nova Gold, which has become one of the, the biggest gold resource reserve holding companies in the world with projects in Alaska and Western Canada. And I was with Nova Gold for about 12 years as one of the, the founders there. Had a great success there. We grew that company from you know a very small startup company, about a $50 million market cap, to you know ultimately, I think at one point, it was about a $4 billion company. And then took a period of the last few years, uh, went down and worked in South America with a company called South American Silver. That was an exciting new place for me to be working. Hadn't spent time previously in my career down in South America, but again, that's one of the world-class districts for large, particularly copper, gold, and, and silver projects. And that company had a great success as well. We grew a 100 million ounce silver deposit into a 400 million ounce silver deposit. But a lesson in geopolitics, oftentimes when you're working outside of the U.S. or Canada, politics starts to come into your projects in a, in a very significant way. And for South American silver, we ended up seeing our very large project nationalized by the government in Bolivia. So though we had had tremendous technical success and early financial uh, success in the market, clearly it was a huge disappointment for, for the team and for our investors to, to see all that effort fall to the wayside. So the opportunity to step on board on a project located in Canada, in the Yukon Territory, with all the really key elements that we look for in terms of facilitating development, scale of the asset, this is a project that's large enough that this is going to be something that's going to be interested to the very biggest mining companies as a potential uh, partnership or acquisition, seven million ounces of platinum palladium metal right next to the Alaska Highway, which gives us access to world-class ports in Alaska by a paved highway. It's an area that's had historic mining. It was a mining operation in the 1970s, and it's an area that's seen continued placer mining in the streams around the area. We've got the native people there, what they call First Nations in Canada, very, very supportive of the project. This is in the, the core of their traditional territory, and they're working closely with us to, to facilitate the development. So all those key elements that one would see and want to see in a project, in my mind, are here in this particular opportunity. And it's in a metal that's very, very rare to find large deposits outside of high geopolitical risk areas. So I was excited to come on board here. The team's been in place since November. And as I said, we've been focused on some of the initial technical work to get everything where it needs to be. And at this point, we're ready to get out and start meeting with investors and, and demonstrating the project we've got and the opportunity at an early stage to see something that uh, can really grow in value. Many of the analysts, newsletter writers, media pundits such as myself, along with investors, are asking this question. If you have the resource, if you've proven it out, in this challenging market, when are you going to go into production? Yeah, that's, that's always the challenge, and you know it can take years. I mean, the average project literally from early discovery phase, when you first realize you've got something, through the engineering phase into the design and eventual construction and permitting phase, can take 10 to 15 years. 
it often requires multiple companies to become involved. So like my experience at Nova Gold and, and South American Silver, we are on this project in the Yukon, like the fifth or sixth company to have worked on this project. And we have the benefit of all that historic work to date. This is an opportunity because the infrastructure is in place to be able to move this project quite quickly. So we actually believe that we could be at a feasibility stage, which is your final engineering stage, within two years and start to construct on the project within a year, potentially, of receiving permits. So it's a project that could move very rapidly by by industry standards, and that's aided by the fact that the permitting and infrastructure look like they should be fairly straightforward. So this is a project in its own right that really could be producing cash flow within just a few years. And, you know, that's fairly rare in our industry, particularly with increased scrutiny on environment, permitting, and so forth that you're seeing, not only in North America, but around the world. So, you know, this is a project that we can do right, and because it's got so many of the elements that you need to build a mine already in place, we think we can do it fairly quickly. That sounds fantastic. In addition to your flagship Wellgreen project that we've been talking about in the Yukon, You have the Shakespeare Project in Sudbury, Ontario, that's near production. Tell us about that. Our Shakespeare Project is located in the Sudbury Mining District that we referred to earlier as one of the the major producing regions in North America for platinum and palladium and nickel and copper. And this is a project that we acquired last year, 100% interest in. It was an operating mine from 2008 to 2012. But because of low metal prices, it was shut down. We're quite excited, particularly with John Sagman, our chief operating officer's experience. He spent 20 years with the majors in the Sudbury District, that being Extrata and Valet. We think that we have some opportunities for significant cost reduction that we're looking at, including an an alternate shipping route to the, the milling and smelting facility as well as, as looking at reduction of our operating costs. And so we're, we're right now studying this. The opportunity here is that this is an open pit mine. It has been mined up until last year. It's fully permitted and ready to go. So either because of a rise in metal prices, which would turn it back on, or because we can reduce operating costs uh, at today's relatively modest prices, of particularly the nickel and copper, we think that this is something that could be turned on fairly quickly and turn into a, a cash flow producer for the company. And when we look at our our estimates of what that might look like, you know, potentially it could pay for our engineering and development costs of the uh, Wellgreen project, which would be quite an exciting development for the company because you'd be self-funded through at least the, the engineering and design phases of the project. In the interim, how are you financed for your projects going forward? Well, right now the company is in better shape than many of our, our peers. We've got about $2 million in cash, and we have been talking with a number of investors who've put money in the company uh, previously about doing uh, an additional financing that would allow us to do a program for 2013 that would include engineering and metallurgical test work to demonstrate uh, the levels of recovery and production we would expect uh, for the project, as well as to undertake basic new expansion drilling. We've got some exciting targets that could be potentially even as large as the current resource that we have already defined, as well as additional drilling to confirm our confidence in the resource to take it towards that confidence level you'd want to see in a reserve. We're in pretty good shape. We will be raising some money here next few months as part of uh, preparations for our summer field program. And then we would anticipate being able to come back to the market first quarter of next year with a substantial update on our engineering and and our resource on the project, which would be an important milestone that investors would want to see. And Greg, tell us about your share structure, if you don't mind. Right now, the the company is is fairly tightly structured. We've got around 68 million shares outstanding, which on a 
per ounce of platinum basis means that you've got you know significant leverage to the metal. You've got about a hundred and fifty dollars worth of uh, platinum and palladium metal per share. The company has uh, significant holdings from insiders. Uh, we do believe in being an owner-builder team. We've got about 6% ownership. And if you look at the insider filings here over the last few months, you'll see that um, we've all been buying shares to a significant degree at these uh, current very attractive prices. I mean, I think it's worth you know, maybe just mentioning uh, where we are in the sector. It's been a very challenging period in the market for the precious metals in general. If we look back, gold bottomed, seems like a long time ago, but in 1999, it hit $250 an ounce. And then it it hit that same level again in 2001. And we've had a series of consolidations in the gold and silver and platinum space since that point as the metal price has risen to new highs. And then often we've seen between a year to two year kind of consolidation periods before moving to new highs again. This last peak in the market was December 2010. And that's when most of the mining companies hit their price peaks. The metals peaked just a bit later than that. And we've been in a consolidation correction phase since that period. And I was just recently looking at some presentation materials for a a technical analyst in the sector, and he was showing a very long-term chart that demonstrated the current valuation in the market of the mining companies versus the metal is at the lowest prices on that ratio since 1999 and the crash in 2008. So it looks like, you know, at this point... The sector has gone through such a significant consolidation that it's at one of those rare once-in-a-decade type price points. And all the negativity that we see in the market right now, I think, suggests that we may be very near to a turning point, which could be a you know a very significant opportunity for investors in the sector. And you're all increasing your share position with your own money. I'm sure you have options, but as my friend, analyst, and newsletter writer Dudley Baker would say, you've got skin in the game. How many companies out there now are putting their money where their mouth is as far as the management is concerned? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really a statement for how strongly we feel that this is a, an outstanding value at this current share price level. You know, effectively, if we look back in our own company's history, we'd have to go back to the point prior to the announcement of the 7 million ounce resource to find a share price level at this point. So effectively, the market has taken all of the increased share price out since we discovered 7 million ounces of platinum. So you're buying the company at the same price you could have bought it before that was discovered. And I think that our team collectively believes that with the opportunities on the engineering side, the fact that this asset is an open, pitable, very large-scale platinum-palladium asset, which could be producing very cost-effectively in the lower quartile, lower 25th percent of global mining costs, that this is an opportunity that has tremendous upside potential. I mean, you may recall, Ellis, in the past, looking at some of the presentations for Nova Gold and South American Silver, we've shown a, a valuation change that typically happens in the sector as companies advance from early development stage through advanced development stage into production. And you see that same pattern in the platinum companies. And just to kind of give you an indication of what those values are looking like, the two producers of platinum and palladium in North America, that would be Stillwater and North American Palladium, currently traded around $170 of metal per ounce in the ground. That's what the market is currently valuing those companies at, which is less than their profit margin per ounce. At the advanced development stage, this is a stage before you construct and go into production, the average for the advanced developers is only $30 per ounce. So it's a, it's a huge discount on the value once those assets are in production. And the average valuation for the early development stage, so the, the first engineering stage where we are today, is around $3 an ounce. So just 
by moving your project from early development stage to advanced development stage, you potentially have a 10x gain in market value. And as you take it from advanced developer up to producer, you know, potentially there's another you know, 6 to 10x increase in value. And so for investors who can identify, whether it be in gold, silver, or platinum, opportunities at that early stage, once there's a resource and once there's a first engineering stage to demonstrate viability, this is one of those places in the market where one can see, with the right team in place and the right asset, huge multiples on their investment uh, over a a three- or four-year period. And from following you over the years, it's safe to say that these are opportunities that you like. You like to come in way into the radar. Of course, you increase the visibility of the company when that happens, and then you assist in taking that company in early stages all the way into fruition. That's really the the opportunity, and I think when investors can can team up with groups in the sector that have serial success, I think it's, it's a real opportunity. When you've got the components that people look at are the people, the property, the ability to raise money, and the jurisdictional location. Is it in a place that I can feel safe? I'm going to be able to develop my asset. And when you've got those three or four components in place, and you're at the early stage, and you're in a market that's been in correction phase for more than two and a half years, you've got the recipe for a very exciting investment entry point and an opportunity to be able to participate with those experts in that sector in terms of future revaluation. And, you know, this is a cyclical market. The mining companies move with the metal prices and sentiment for the sector. It's been a very negative sentiment environment here for the last two years. And that will have an end, and it'll probably be a surprise when it does end, and it will start moving into a bullish phase where people are worried about missing their profit opportunity. And when it does, people that have been picking away at high-quality names at this point in the market I think will be well rewarded. Well, Greg, this has been a great interview. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Well, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to updating you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, President and CEO of Prophecy Platinum trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or find the Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, this is Cool Voice Guy. Would you like to hear all of that again? Go to the podcast page of our website. That's ellismartinreport.com. ellismartinreport.com. Otherwise known as ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. It's uh, nice to be talking to you again. Since we've last spoken, Alkane has had two significant news releases. The government of New South Wales has granted you that mining lease that you were waiting for. It's a new government, isn't it? And then you have an update on construction at Tomlingley. You expect to be producing gold by the end of the year. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I mean, it certainly was a a long process to get the mining lease approved. And you're right about the government, although they did change about uh, two years ago. But like all new governments, they take a little while to get things sorted out. But yes, we finally had the mining lease granted. And uh, that's enabled us to push the button to go. Uh, We virtually started the construction work immediately after we got approval and relatively short timetable to get the project up and running. So by the end 
of the year, so certainly in December we'll be commissioning the plant and should be fully producing gold uh, sometime early in the new year. So it's going well. Any chance that can happen sooner? I'm sure you're being conservative by saying you expect to begin producing gold by the beginning of next year, allowing yourself some extra time. But if you already have shovels in the ground, who knows? Yes, it's, um, I'm always a bit cautious. Uh, the engineers assure me that's the timetable and uh, I have to be guided by their opinions. And uh, yes, it'd be, it'd be great to do a shorter timetable, but I think realistically it's still about probably 10 months, 11 months to construct and then get it up and running. Now, from what I read, you're extending your mine life at Tomlingley from 7 to 10 years. Is that true? Yes, it's heading in the right direction. Uh, just recently, and along with the mining lease approval, we've announced some drilling results from a, a new prospect inside the mining lease area, which is good. It's very close to the existing infrastructure. But it's another deposit we call Coloma 2, just because it's located near the actual main Coloma deposit. And we've generated some quite spectacular drill intersections. Uh, some we announced yesterday was a metre at 821 grams, and if I convert that for you, it's about probably three and a half feet at 26 ounces. So you can appreciate that's a quite a spectacular intercept. It, it's certainly the best we've ever had in the whole of the Tomlingley Gold Project where we've been drilling now for sort of eight or nine years. So it's nice to see a spectacular result, but supported by many, many other good results also, which uh, just helps the overall sort of future of the project. And extending it out, as you said, from its sort of seven and a half year life out towards the 10 years, which is what we always targeted. That's almost an unbelievable amount. I don't see that too often. Look, it's, I like to say it's not that uncommon when you're dealing with gold and uh, every now and again you do pick up one of these spectacular intersections a drill bit just happens to go through a very rich patch in the ground but it'd be nice to say you could do it regularly and end up with some quite spectacular average grades across the deposit but it doesn't happen all that that often but at least as I said the supporting other drilling intersections we're getting are supporting a, a fairly good project there but um, that's still a way to go before we can sign off and say what the resource is and what the mineability of it is. Did you take any photographs of the core? It's actually from what we call a reverse circular drilling so that uses a hammer hammering into the ground so the sample comes up as sort of fine powder but the geologist who was uh, logging the material at the time said he was a bit taken aback because at first of all he thought it was something like pyrite disseminated through the crushed sample and then he looked closely and realized it was gold so that's pretty unusual in my experience just to see gold in particularly a reverse circulation type sample is very unusual but it's quite clear there apparently. But no, to answer your question, sorry, we, we didn't take any photographs. We probably should. I'd love to see them. You can almost take that right to the smelter, can't you? You could probably sieve the sample and, and then make some money just out of the residual gold with those sorts of grades that are 26 ounces. In that sample, in today's gold price, you've got several hundred thousand dollars. Not bad for a day's work, I guess. It'd be great, yeah. Just love to think you could do that all the time. Instead of having a mining operation, a processing facility, we'll all get out there with our shovels and uh, dig our way to glory. That's almost how it was done back in the Old West in the 1850s here in California. No, absolutely. I, th I think worldwide the prospector activity and you know, the one in 1,000 or one in 10,000 prospectors that made it good probably had one of those situations where he, he sunk his shovel into something quite spectacular and, and made his fortune. So uh, unfortunately we tend to be a bit more systematic these days and do things and spend large amounts of money getting large deposits and building large processing plants and doing all that, but uh, perhaps the good old days sometimes are better. Well, no matter what the share price seems to be for gold stocks right now, 
you're headed into production. You'll have a market for that gold right away. That will bring revenue into the company. Not many juniors can say that at the moment. No, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, it was always the target with this project. We knew it was never going to be a large gold operation, but at 55, 60,000 ounces a year, it'll generate something like 30 million a year cash flow. Uh, and if we do push it out from the seven and a half years to 10 years, that's a, a nice, consistent, steady stream uh, of income. It keeps us out of the need to go back to the market all the time to, to keep generating funds. So uh, it'll be a very good, and as we call it, a, a bread and butter business for us while we look towards to developing the, the bigger Dubbo-Zaconia project. Well, we have a depressed market, so to speak, for precious metals, although compared to several years ago, bullion is still indeed high. We're seeing elevated prices for platinum and palladium. Car sales are up here in the great state of California, the world's eighth largest economy. In fact, they're booming. This has to be a great sign for companies slated to produce base metals, rarers, rare metals, zirconium, and a host of other minerals. The economy may be turning around here in the U.S. Yes, I mean, that's certainly the vibes we're getting also. We're hearing that there certainly are some, some signs of life and starting to rub off through the consumer profiles and what's coming out. And as you're right, I mean, across the board, the metals that we're interested in, mainly the zirconium and the rare earths, have been really quite low for 12 months now. They've, they've taken a real hammering. But it's very important going forward to see the U.S. economy rebound because there's no doubt it's, it's the, one of the most important economies in the world. And you're right about things like vehicle sales. I mean, one of the major uses of zirconia is that it's a ceramic that sits in the car exhaust system. It's that bulbous thing down towards the back end of your exhaust. And that uses about half a kilo of zirconia ceramic. And it's an integral part of the emissions minimization. So we're very happy to see car sales starting to pick up because that'll flow on back into the guys that manufacture the auto catalysts and hence come and consume uh, zirconia which we produce so it's all good to see and it's all good to see a little bit of I guess vibrancy starting to come back into the world. You haven't really experienced any sort of recession in Australia, have you? No, but it's been mixed. The politicians love to talk about a two-speed economy here, and they've got the general mining industry, the resources sector, is really booming along and has been for five or six years. The manufacturing side of the country has been very depressed. We have great difficulty competing with Asian imports and those sort of things. So that's taken a bit of a hammering. So I guess overall, though, the country's come out pretty well, really supported by the resources industry. I do shudder to think what it would have looked like had we not had that very vibrant resource industry. So everything that you'll be producing will go offshore? At this stage, yes. We really have a very limited market here for what I call these exotic metals, the, the sort of things that go that they're made into. The Australian manufacturing industry is quite small. We've traditionally tended to, to buy things in from, from the US, China and Europe. And so that's where our product goes. It goes off to where those metals are consumed. And in a sense, no matter what the economy is doing around the world, all of that offtake is spoken for in advance isn't it? It is. Uh, certainly we're still working on the zirconium side particularly because we've changed our strategy slightly. We were encouraged two years ago by a large Asian group to look at producing a product called zirconium oxychloride and the reason for that was that China currently supplies about 90% of the world's uh, zirconium oxychloride and this particular partner was seeing rapid escalations in price restrictions in supply so they came to us and said look you've got a very large resource that's not related to zircon which is the, the normal precursor to oxychloride and would we look at it together with them to develop a, a new source now we've gone down that path but at a point now where in the last 
six months, we've seen that there's carnium oxychloride. Really, the price, the demand for it collapsed dramatically. And so we've now reverted back to our original concept, which is to produce other zirconium chemicals and the zirconias particularly, the, the high-purity zirconia, which we produce from our standard flow sheets. So that's the only area where we probably changed our model in terms of sales in the last uh, six months. But things like our niobium, uh, we're very close to signing the final stages of a joint venture to produce ferro-niobium and sell to a European alloy manufacturer. And then with the rare earths, our deal with the, the giant uh, chemical company in Japan, Shinetsu, is progressing very, very well. And that's a I still consider that the most exciting development that we've done with the Dubbo Zirconia project, just guarantee to take our output of the two light, the light concentrate and the heavy concentrate and then produce all the individual separated rare earths and then have Shinetsu buy the, the area that they have interest in and, and leave us with the remainder to sell. So it's a very good result. It takes out for us the risk of having to develop uh, a rare earth separation flow sheet and also the additional finance that would come with capital cost to, to build that plant. So we're very comfortable. Everything's going along quite well. Uh, the project is still on schedule for uh, approval late this year or early in the new year and then productions of late 2015. So it's all going the right direction. We're looking at a potential mid-tier company with Alcane, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, really... When you look at Alcane in, say, 2016, 2017, we'll be generating cash flows in the order of uh, $250 million Australian dollars a year from Dubbo Project, another $30 million a year from the Gold Project. So, you know, we'll be in that spectrum of 250 to $300 million a year, and that certainly will change the character of Alcane and set it up to be a strong company going way into the future. Now, it's quite obvious that I'm talking to the president of an Australian-based company, and this is an overseas interview, but Alcane actually trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY at pretty much a ground floor share price. I'm speculating when I say that, and you would be too. But the opportunity would be now to really capitalize on your investment as a new shareholder. Of course, there will continue to be opportunity as you roll out into production. But again, the best opportunity is probably right now when the market in general is potentially very undervalued. I completely agree with you. Yes, we believe we've got to the bottom. Uh, we've really had sort of downward trend now for six months on the Alcane share price, and it's been bouncing around that level now at around 60 cents Australian. That on the OTC would be uh, probably six dollars, uh, but it's been bouncing around that level now for some time. And when you look at the assets the company's got, I mean, just in cash and our tradable shares, uh, we've got something like 45 cents of value there. So if you take 45 cents from from 60 cents, and then you look at the value value in the, the Tommingley Gold project and the enormous value in the Dubbo Zirconia project, it's a very cheap price at this point in time. I guess that's one way to summarize it. And there's no reason not to speculate that when eyes and ears get back into this end of the sector again. You could be where you were a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, a $26, $27 a stock here in the U.S., yeah, correct. I mean, that's right. I mean, basically, that's what we think. We understand the market dynamics and, and there's a lot of concern. And uh, I guess people get very conservative in these type of markets and look more at risk factors. And, and the risk factors they'll apply to us are genuine. We've got two years to get the, the main project up and running. So there's two years to go. And who's going to be sure what happens in that time? But really, the, the downside to the Alcane value right now is pretty small and the upside is enormous. And certainly, we would believe that sometime going into the new year, the, the company should be significantly re-rated. Well, the fact remains it's basically supply-side economics. You have the supply, the demand is always going to be there, and the supply may never actually meet the demand. And there's really nowhere to go but up. That's something you can't say, but I'll go ahead and say it. 
Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll agree with you then. Well, Ian, once again, it's been great having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thanks very much, Alex. Appreciate it as always. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, the CEO and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Yeah, you did. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves, thinking you might actually be interested. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. It's Car Kicks. Classics, custom sports cars and trucks, plus news, great places to go, and products you'll love at carkicks.com. That's K-A-R. KIX.com. Now, here's the host of Car Kicks, Bob Lang. Hi, and welcome to Car Kicks. A special event today as we begin a series with Car Kicks correspondent Mark Roman interviewing Barrett Jackson about a new product they have that's in the second half. One of the biggest events in hot rodding, if not the coolest, is the Hot Rod Power Tour. We recently talked about green hot rods or E-Rods. For the Power Tour, Chevy plopped their LS3 E-Rod engine into a 55 Custom. The 6.2-liter engine is rated at 430 horsepower and 424 pounds of torque. Here's the cool part. It averaged 23 miles per gallon for the whole Power Tour. E-Rod engines allow you the freedom to build your own kit car or street rod with a confidence that it can be registered and is street legal. With the new E-Rod Crate Engine Package, hot rodding comes with a smaller carbon footprint, and you can still truly get high performance. Go see your GM Performance Parts dealer for more information. In the Rare Earth is not just a band from the 70s department. Ford is using Rare Earth materials in the next-generation Fusion Hybrid, which is also exceeding its projected fuel economy targets. According to a report from Ford Insider News, the new Fusion should achieve around 47, 48 miles per gallon in the city. That is Prius territory with a lot more comfort. And likely to provide even more comfort is the 2013 Lincoln MKZ. It's been delayed to the second half of 2012, likely due to styling work. Lincoln watched their baby brother Mercury disappear and want to be very careful not to do the same. The benefit is that consumers will enjoy high quality fuel efficiency in an American luxury car. About time, huh? Car Kicks correspondent Mark Roman reports from Scottsdale on the Barrett-Jackson Insurance Program after this. It's hip. It's the Car Kicks Car Cap, a great ball cap for just $10. You can be a part of the ruling elite with your Car Kicks Car Cap. Stop being laughed at by your mom. Get the hat. Just 10 bucks plus tax and handling, and an agent of a semi-governmental agency will deliver it to wherever you get your U.S. mail. Get the Car Kicks Car Cap today at carkicks.com. That's K-A-R-K-I-X.com. And now, Car Kicks correspondent Mark Roman talks to Dan Kilgrass and James Schwartzkopf about the Barrett-Jackson Insurance Program. And with me right now is Dan Kilgrass, and he is the Insurance Program Manager for Barrett-Jackson. And also, through TDC Risk Management, is James Schwartzkopf from that company. How did this start? We came out here as TDC Risk Management and rolled out a whole new brand of collector car insurance with Steve and Gary and... and, um, in Craig's input, we have coverages in these policies now that other carriers do not have at this time, and quite frankly, we have a competitive premium that uh, it makes it very attractive. Maybe you guys can take me through the process. 
I watch Bear Jackson at home, let's say, you know, for years and years, and I've always wanted to buy a car, and I finally, you know, decided, hey, I'm going to hop a plane, and I'm going to come to Scottsdale, and I bid on this car, and I didn't think I was going to get it, but I got it. How do you guys help me out here? Uh, most people have car insurance for their daily drivers, but if they're buying their first collector car, there's a big difference between a collector car policy and a daily driver policy. The most uh, significant difference is how a loss is adjusted. You want to be able to put original parts back on it when available. Uh, if uh, You want to protect your investment so it's uh, adjusted on what's called an agreed value basis to where, uh, especially here at Barrett-Jackson, after the gavel falls, you basically set the value of that vehicle on that day and we would insure it for that, 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 uh, for that value and that would hold true. So if the car was ever damaged, lost, stolen, totaled, whatever it might be, the, our insurance carrier is going to write a check for a minimum of that agreed value that the, the, the car has been purchased for. Did you know that Barrett Jackson will even insure your collectibles and memorabilia? You can hear the whole interview at carkicks.com. Join us next time for part two with Barrett Jackson and so much more on Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. Join us on the web at carkicks.com. That's K-A-R-K-I-X.com. And on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk